I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be talking about potential solutions for some of the biggest obstacles and challenges we face going forward with climate crisis, as well as issues pertaining to corporate greenwashing and the possibility of entering a post-capitalist paradigm in order to fight climate chaos. Joining us to discuss all of this and more is Harvard's Dr. Ye Tao of the Mirrors for Earth's Energy Rebalancing Framework, or MEER, M-E-E-R for short. Trust me when I say that I think you'll find this to be a fascinating conversation. But before we get to that, this episode is dedicated to young activists struggling to secure livable human habitats for future generations, to indigenous peoples risking their lives to stop the extractive rape of Mother Earth on their sacred lands, and to the communities of the Global South, whose historic share of greenhouse gas emissions is small, but whose loss and grief from living in an overheated world will be great. Also, before we get to the conversation, If you're in California and looking for someone that can meet your therapeutic needs, you may want to consider obtaining the services of Alexander Yu. Alexander specializes in providing services to those dealing with grief, trauma, and PTSD, as well as dealing with issues related to LGBTIQ and gender. Additionally, Alexander can help you if you're looking for marriage or relationship counseling. So if you need any of those type of therapeutic needs met, you can do no better than Alexander Yu, marriage and family therapist, California license number 102886. You can reach Alexander by phone at 323-834-9828 or by email at therapy at alexanderyoo.com. Services applicable to California residents only. And with that being said, let's get to the conversation with Dr. Ye Tao of the Mir Framework Project. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very interested to have on. Uh, another listener actually recommended you, Dr. Ye Tao of the Mirror Reflection Project. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. So before we get into Mirror Reflection, uh, this project has to do with the issues we're facing with regards to climate change. And I was wondering for my audience, and I know you talked about this at the uh, COP26, the United Nations uh, Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, uh, but maybe you could just give my listeners an idea of what you think the main threats posed right now by climate change. What are they uh, heading into the future here? So basically at the core, climate change right now is uh, due to a surplus of heat or surplus of thermal energy that's accumulating on planet Earth. So there's more heat coming in than it's going out for any given period of time. And this accumulation of heat is causing a lot of downstream impacts. There's many examples, storms, hurricanes, and like the tornado that we just recently experienced uh, in December, it could be potentially linked to an excess of heat uh, on the ground in this case. 
and also decimation of crops due to drought, et cetera, can also be traced to an excess of heat, which increases the need for irrigation and also uh, affects other plant biology often negatively. So heat is really uh, the near-term uh, problem we're trying to deal with. And traditionally, you know, before, let's say 30 years ago at the beginning of the roughly beginning of COPS, the idea was that by uh, reducing emissions, we would be able to uh, avert the current, you know, a very dramatic and fast accumulation of heat if we had to start to act 30 years ago. But due to inability to really have a real political action going on, um, the problem has reached a point where it now becomes questionable whether just pursuing greenhouse mitigation is at all sufficient to really prevent what's already being observed by a catastrophic accumulation of heat, which is really the more immediate danger we have to be faced with. So really, really quick on that note. Uh, so you would say we have to prioritize, I, I believe you even say this on the website, uh, the, the MIR website, that we have to prioritize uh, temperature rise and the issues that thermal stress uh, can cause. And I mean, thermal stress can have deleterious consequences for biodiversity, um, aquatic, marine, and terrestrial ecosystems, and whatnot. Uh, but we have to focus on uh, temperature rise uh, first and foremost, uh, before even talking about things like low emissions and deacidification. Uh, could you speak about why do we need to worry about that first and foremost compared to some of those other issues? I think the easy analogy is to think about uh, the fact that smoking can be linked or be causal to cancer. But once you have uh, lung cancer, it's probably not going to help you very much by just stopping to smoke. You need to also have additional treatments going on. It's a bit like the case here. Yes, climate change, global warming, as we're currently experiencing, was initially caused by you know, emission of, green, uh, of fossil fuels. But at this point, um, simply stopping to emit will not very effectively bring us back to the original climatic conditions under which uh, life can thrive. And in fact, there's many um, processes going on, quite complex, uh, that essentially guarantees additional warming of roughly on the order of one degree Celsius, even if we were to stop emission uh, today. Uh, so it's a bit too late to really quit smoking to cure your cancer. So then with regards to mere reflection, how did this project come about out of curiosity? What, what's the origins of it? And then maybe uh, let my listeners know what exactly it entails. So the origin uh, basically came uh, about over uh, the past about four to five years, uh, around uh, 2017, 2018, I really became aware of the urgency of the climate uh, crisis. And myself, I'm trained uh, in the fields of uh, physics, uh, chemistry, material science, and also uh, the fabrication and design of complex instrumentation for um, doing very precise measurements. So I have a bit of a multidisciplinary background. And I was uh, directing a lab at the, at the time, uh, 2017, trying to invent or develop a new kind of microscope to take atomic resolution images of tiny specks of matters like uh, viruses or antibodies or uh, nanoparticles for material science and medical applications in the end. Um, but then once, you know, I really uh, looked into climate science and heard people talking about it and uh, listening to ecological colleagues speaking about the issue, it became quite apparent that if it's an issue or a problem of, uh, you know, with an urgency that's on the order of 10 or a few decades down the line, then it doesn't make really make sense, you know, to, for example, pursue uh, my former uh, field, uh, a high technology that could, you know, take another day, a few decades to develop. So I felt the need to really leverage my learning uh, in material science, physics, chemistry to, to, you know, just do what I can to contribute to solving this uh, biggest threat to human civilization. Uh, so that's how I started to think about these issues. And my training was in the field of nanoscience and nanotechnology. And in nanoscience, we study uh, materials as thin films or nanoparticles. So a thin film is essentially, uh, a, you know, tens to hundreds of nanometers of material on some flat substrate. Uh, so advantages include you don't need to use as much of the material. 
So say if you coated a piece of metal with gold, just a few layers of gold atom, it appears uh, quite bright. So for optical properties, uh, you can get you know, a, a lot of benefit by using very little material in the end. So we talk about uh, dimensionality a lot in nanoscience. And that's when I thought, okay, climate change and greenhouse gas accumulation is a three-dimensional problem because we have um, emitted so much gas into a three-dimensional space that's the Earth's atmosphere. It's very much freely mixed. So in order to clean this gigantic volume, that's a tremendous challenge. So it's a, we have in front of us a 3D engineering problem. But of course, if you factor in the time needed to suck all the air out and circulate it, it's like four dimensional problem with the time. So I thought, okay, now uh, the reason why we're you know, focused or obsessed with uh, getting rid of greenhouse gas is trying to open a window so the heat from earth can escape. What if we looked upstream of the problem? Let's say we prevented heat from being produced in the first place by just reducing how much heat is produced on the ground as the sun, sun shines in. And then we can also address the problem with a similar efficiency, actually much more efficiently. And the conversion of sunlight into heat happens at an, a surface, essentially. So we would have reduced a formerly three-dimensional problem that is uh, demixing the atmosphere and cleaning, scrubbing it, uh, and cleaning up CO2 to a two-dimensional problem of a surface. And from engineering, uh, practical implementation point of view, scalability point of view, that really brings a formerly intractable problem into one that can actually be addressed using very limited resource, time, and energy at the disposal of human uh, and of humanity. So that's basically the origin uh, of the story of how my background in nanoscale engineering and thin film fabrication uh, informed this uh, conceptual shift and the conceptual reduction of climate change problem uh, at uh, you know, from the three-dimensional to a two-dimensional issue. So for people that don't know, MIRS stands for, I believe, MIRS for Earth is Energy Rebalancing. Um, how do MIRS figure into all of this? It, it, it involves uh, using MIRS uh, to have a cooling effect, correct? Uh, correct. So there are several... Um, uh, uh, specifics about the type of mirror that we're considering. First of all, they are have to they have to be made of glass. Uh, why glass? Because glass, borosilicate glass, um, and soda lime glass, these contain you know only silicon, sodium, oxygen, calcium, magnesium. These are the most abundant elements in the Earth's crust. So we will never run out of raw material essentially. Uh, so that's uh, priority number one. And they're also very cheap to make from an energy standpoint. They're roughly like 2% of the, uh, the energy intensity of uh, structural metal like aluminum or steel on a per volume basis. So these are things that can be made uh, rather easily. So glass mirrors, and they are, they are to be placed on the ground. Why do we want to put them on the ground rather than in space? There are several reasons to that. One is to launch anything into space requires a lot of energy and infrastructure, right? And uh, one can do the calculation. It's essentially prohibitive to launch any sizable areas or volumes of material into space. Second, you have a, a very dramatic a local cooling effect if the mirrors are installed on the ground. We have preliminary data showing that a very small, like two by two feet of mirror can cool its local environment, the soils, by on the order of up to 10 degree Fahrenheit at a, a depth of about three inches. And that's quite significant. And basically wood, uh, prevent a lot of uh, plants from dying from heat stress, uh, especially during heat waves. That's becoming more and more um, uh, frequent uh, as climate change worsens. So, uh, so uh, mirrors, glass mirrors, and they're also very stable. So on the ground, they can last for a long time and provide very strong local benefits. And that provides incentive for uh, farmers, uh, individual citizens, you know, to um, implement them as a local adaptation ben, uh, uh, approach. And at the same time, they would also contribute to a global uh, cooling process because the uh, lack of heat absorption at that particular location allows excess heat to flow in essentially, thereby removing a bit of the heat stress elsewhere. So it's a approach which is local in the hands of individuals, individual uh, 
communities uh, can decide and to afford a system to protect their local agriculture um, uh, capability and sustainability into the future. So I, I wanted to, just to clarify, I mean, basically the idea is that these thin film coated glass mirrors, putting them over land and oceans would, uh, it, it, would it would cause them to reflect solar radiation back into space uh, to cool the biosphere. And this would actually uh, be sort of a triple win, I guess, for climate, uh, food, and energy production as well? Uh, yeah, that's a very good uh, question slash comment, yes. So we envision that uh, some of the first places to implement include uh, uh, regions that are very densely ha habitated, uh, you know, inhabited, that that's under heat stress um, due to, for example, urban heat island effects. So uh, that's one. The other is to implement in crop fields in regions where it's becoming too hot and too dry for agriculture to, uh, to proceed. So the effect of mirror uh, in crop fields when they're in uh, properly designed arrays is general temperature reduction, which slows down evaporation and it's needed for irrigation. And also it provides um, further cooling and uh, some reduction of the amount of sunlight that arrives on the leaves of certain plants which are um, light sensitive. So there's many plants who cannot really take the full blast of the sun at noon. So um, it's uh, entirely possible that even if we say covered up 10% of the field, the productivity of the field could increase by more than 10%, 20, 30% based on some model uh, simulations and data from the agricultural field. So um, there's an argument to be made that um, sacrificing a bit of the agricultural land, which is highly engineered anyways, to do this uh, local cooling can both benefit agriculture and also cool the planet at the same time. And when it's, of course, um, optimized and also scaled up to a scale where there, it would have a global impact. But of course, that's a, a long ways into the future and requires a lot of collaboration with uh, uh, climate simulation groups in order to identify what's the best pattern of the implementation so that you not only bring about very strong local uh, water saving uh, benefits, but also promote a better precipitation pattern elsewhere you know, on earth so that we do not unintentionally deprive other people or ecosystems of uh, the precious rainfall that they, that they need you know, in order to thrive. And now a word from our sponsors. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. Hey, Parallax Views listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. So 
this idea of, of using mirrors to cool the earth has actually been uh, it's been around for quite a while, I believe, a few decades now. What, why do you think it hasn't been um, implemented at scale yet? And could you speak a little bit more to what, what do we mean by implementing at scale and, and this issue of scalability for people that may, be, uh, that, that may not understand what terms we're using if they're a layperson? Okay, so the idea of the increase in the albedo of the Earth's surface has indeed been around for many, many um, years, uh, decades in some cases. So there's been proposal and study about, say, uh, brightening the crops, making crops uh, wider on average so they reflect more light. So there's idea of, uh, in the past, uh, painting all roofs white uh, using white paint. There's also ideas of covering the Sahara using, say, white plastic. Etc. So the main distinction between Mir and all previous proposal is that we come from a very strong material science background, and we understand that uh, implementation and scaling is limited not only by how uh, how much of the material you have, uh, but also by in the on the long run how much energy you need to invest to maintain the infrastructure. And when we are talking about infrastructure infrastructural maintenance, you want your um, um, uh, the devices to be stable in time that they don't degrade you know, every five to 10 years, as would be the case for um, uh, say white paint, which need to be more or less uh, redone every five to 10 years. So glass mirrors uh, in the context of uh, solar energy capture have demonstrated field durability of at least 30 years without measurable degradation when it's properly engineered. And it's entirely possible to have on the order of a century or beyond lifetimes. So when you factor in uh, you know, the longevity and durability and also the zero emission post uh, when it's installed in the field, in contrast, say, uh, white paint or white plastic, which eventually gets oxidized and turned into CO2 emissions in the end, then it becomes quite clear why we have to go with a reflective surface that's inorganic in nature. That's basically rocks and stones, silicon oxygen, that even if they, they broke, et cetera, they eventually turns into sand that, that's indistinguishable from background um, uh, materials. Uh, but uh, of course, glass, as everybody knows, is a very durable material. And there are a lot of innovation also in the glass industry recently, including like willow glass uh, from Corning and also gorilla glass, you know, used on cell phones. So they can be very thin, but very, very sturdy. So by making them thin and very, you know, using less material, we can also save on the overall energy uh, necessary to uh, implement the infrastructure. And we have done the calculation. Uh, it requires on the order of um, a couple percent of global uh, current energy use to make enough mirrors to essentially cancel out uh, the impact of current emissions. And you know, current emissions, if we assume 50 um, uh, gigaton CO2 equivalent per year, about 40, uh, 40 gigaton of that is CO2. And the, uh, the rest is contributed by methane and uh, nitrous oxide and some others. So the, the proportion above uh, the CO2, so the other gases, on average decays faster um, than CO2. Methane, for example, only has a lifetime of about, uh, you know, half-life of nine years, 10 years. So if your device can last longer uh, on average than the gases that integrated over time, uh, if you put enough to cancel contemporary emissions over time, actually you achieve net cooling. So this is a question of durability, you know, return to traditional values. Once you make it, you make it last for, for a long time, um, such that the lifetime of your intervention is comparable in some cases to the lifetime of CO2, you know, centuries, or at least uh, on time scale that's relevant uh, for human to fully transition to renewables and also to allow uh, CO2 capture technologies, which are intrinsically very slow, to then be able to contribute to returning the ecosystem back to uh, pre-industrials of 280 ppm, at which point we can slowly, you know, ramp down the um, glass mirror infrastructure and glass mirrors are 100% recyclable. Right. And then you can use this glass to make other uh, you know, structural material, bricks, maybe for some new houses or doors and windows. So 
it's a way um, uh, to also slowly move into a circular economy where you design 100% recyclability into every product you make. And uh, these glass mirrors is one example of uh, that kind of uh, design for a future economy. I, I wanted to get into that, actually, the economy aspect of this, because you're talking about things like durability and the need for durability with all of this. And yet we live in a, a sort of system right now where a lot of companies are um, almost against durability. They want uh, you know, planned obsolescence, which I think you talk about in the um, lecture you gave at the COP26. Yes, uh, obviously, you know, the current system um, is set up to reward you know, um, as much profit as possible in as short of time as possible. And uh, any product, no matter what product you make, uh, material and energy has gone into its fabrication. And the materials are usually like raw uh, resources we extract from the earth, of which there is a finite amount. Some are renewable, but most are not. So if we allowed you know, this sort of uh, paradigm of as much conversion of the material and resource into some product that break down quickly, as quickly as possible, then consequence, logical consequence of such a system is a very speedy destruction of Earth. So there is no other logical alternative. So obviously the system is not um, sustainable and we're basically coming to the end of such a system because in our lifetimes, both you and I, we will be witnessing the end of the system. Uh, there's simply no, no other possibility and it's constrained by fundamental physics and just basic logic, right? So we obviously- In other words, not, not to interrupt you, but in other words, you know, the, the paradigm shift towards recognizing that we live on a finite planet with finite resources, that has to come at some point, yeah. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yes, so there has to be a paradigm shift and reconceptualization of what companies mean, what, what are their missions? Should we have some common missions and common properties you know, given to companies? So corporations, they are given legal entities as individuals. So, and, but there's no individual who uh, can exist forever. So maybe we can also, for example, uh, apply a 50 year uh, duration to any individual company. And that perhaps these companies would then be motivated to uh, make product that lasts so that at the end of 50 years, at least their name will remain due to their superior engineering that lasts for, forever. And maybe we can, at the governmental level, you know, allow exceptions for exceptionally durable, environmentally friendly and beneficial products to have an extension of life. So, so these are just, uh, you know, ideas that's we're thinking about in the new paradigm. Now, with regards to this project and, and the implementation of it, what are the biggest um, hurdles or obstacles uh, to Mayor? Uh, obviously, it's the, uh, the tension between uh, having to put this out quickly and also in doing so without perpetuating, perpetuating the current economic and paradigm. So we have been approached by investors who are very interested in turning many of our ideas into commercializable products, but we so far have refrained you know, from pursuing that route of taking just the standard investment um, and money from investors who expect uh, economic return as the reason for uh, investing. So that's one. The other is we're still in the process of uh, gathering fundamental data. And uh, or testing whether indeed you can have very strong local benefits, which includes cooling, but also say agricultural benefits in heat stressed areas. So uh, we're still in the process of collecting primary data. So that's the other hurdle. Big experiments take time and you cannot just uh, you know, do it for one day. You need to monitor over seasons, several seasons and um, to sample different climatic conditions and drought and freeze conditions to make sure that the device and design, et cetera, is robust. And, doesn't change as a function of background climate. And we were today just having a meeting and looking at some uh, floating mirror devices. And apparently the, uh, the heat flux um, you know, through uh, the water bodies uh, on which these are floating is a function of the background, um, uh, just the season. Just in the summer, they behave a certain way, but in the winter, they behave differently. So there's a lot of science, basic science and engineering that needs to be done still before we're you know, fully ready with uh, all the technical specifics. Is there any idea of like how much 
land or how much of the ocean would need to be uh, used for this project? Uh, yes, yeah, so basically we're thinking, you know, from a practical point of view and just a ready to deploy point of view, land implementation is probably the most uh, likely uh, in the foreseeable decade uh, or so. And also because lands uh, used for agriculture in many parts are already heat stressed and drought stressed. So it's there that we can have the most immediate uh, uh, co-benefits. Um, so in terms of uh, coverage, uh, we, our basic estimation is that about 10 to 20% of the cropland, say, are covered from now until end of the, the century slowly, would enable more or less stabilization of current climates on a you know, moderate emission trajectory, like RCP 4.5, roughly. So it's about 10 to 20% of cropland by the end of the century. But of course, if we managed you know, to decarbonize way before that, then the requirement would be much less. In terms of uh, implementation over oceans, uh, we think there is benefit for uh, selected systems, including above coral reefs. So there are recent studies uh, that suggest that not only are reefs very sensitive to the, the heat, they're actually also very sensitive to light during these heat waves. So if we can uh, you know, decrease the amount of uh, uh, light reaching them during heat waves and also by lowering the temperature overall, it could be local benefits. So the, for some niche application, uh, floated mirror arrays could be useful. The other location is um, to apply floating mirror arrays um, in reservoirs to prevent water loss, you know, uh, because those uh, spaces are essentially um, not very otherwise usable. When it comes to using technology to deal with uh, climate change or a number of other issues, uh, a lot of people uh, I think have a knee-jerk reaction at times to saying, uh, oh, uh, this this tech, what if it does this? Or what if it harms this? Um, has there been any negative feedback over um, Mir? Or or like, do people have questions about things like, uh, will, will this harm certain animals? Or will this, you know, interfere with pilots and things like that? Yes, uh, very good question. So, um, interference with uh, pilots and birds are uh, by far the most common questions we get. So uh, just to reassure uh, the listeners, our test field has been uh, approved by the, um, uh, the flight administrations to be uh, beside an airport in Plymouth, uh, New Hampshire. So it's not a real risk uh, for pilots. Also because we're not you know, implementing these mirrors in a way that focuses light in order to say, uh, heat something up uh, in mid-flight. Uh, so that's not really a concern. So because we're, they're not focused, they also do not pose any risk to birds. So in our test arrays, we often see birds perched on top of the mirrors. Actually, it's, uh, they, it offers a pretty good you know, resting spot for birds. And uh, turkey flocks also go through the mirror array and uh, they seem to be happy. So for birds and pilots, those are not concerns uh, of immediate concerns. Uh, but uh, for uh, year 2022, uh, we're going to be looking for citizen scientists to participate in the project in order to answer some of these questions of how local uh, fauna and flora interact with the mirror arrays. And um, we're um, hoping to recruit on the order of 100 different uh, citizens with uh, some land or front yard, even your backyard, uh, from across different climates of the United States and also across the, around the world in order to have um, more data on location-specific and uh, species-specific interactions, and also to create uh, a database for the durability you know, of the mirrors in different climatic conditions. Certainly, we wouldn't expect them to you know, really survive the tornado that just tore through uh, southern states, but we were pretty confident that just regular snowstorms, and et cetera, should be no problem because they have been tested um, in Boston and New Hampshire over the past year or so, and they have survived just fine. But of course, the extreme climates are becoming more frequent, so we want to also have some data um, under those conditions. Is there a timeline for any of this? I keep seeing uh, in some other interviews with you, uh, you know, talking of uh, 30 to 40 years and how we are very limited on time when dealing with these efforts. And this needs to be a really gargantuan effort uh, to implement MIR. Um, yes, so nobody really knows, you know, how long 
the set of living arrangement can keep on going. And uh, our ability to adapt and to, to innovate also depends on a healthy econ economy and a stable world geopolitics. And there are signs that these are not things that we should be taking for granted, especially when um, there's environmentally induced stress that's stress an already stressed system even more, including you know, you know migrant crises and also natural disasters in different areas. So, well, you know, we don't really know how, how, many, how much time we have, but what we do know is that the average global temperature is very much on track to breaking, you know, 1.5 and 2 degree mark somewhere uh, in the 2040s, 2 degree mark in the 2040s. And if we uh, believe, uh, as it's indicated by existing literature, that uh, uh, every half degree Celsius increase leads to more than, you know, proportional increase in risk because it's a nonlinear process, uh, both from you know inducing feedback loops and also from just direct impact on uh, heat wave frequency intensity etc. We should be expecting much more devastation from uh, drought, um, storms, and fires in the coming 10-20 years. So let's hope that humanity can hold together, you know, and stay focused on implementing all the different innovations that's needed to both decarbonize the economy, but also to uh, have um, you know, a scalable method to deal with the heat problem, which is undermining our ability for continued innovation. So then, is this the only type of technology that could be used to sort of avert climate catastrophe? Is there anything else? Or uh, do you think this is the sort of best chance we have at this point? So the use of glass mirrors for cooling earth is only one of many different uh, projects we have under the envelope of, of mirror. Um, so there are other ways to also cool the earth, for example, by spraying uh, sulfuric acids and other nanoparticles into the stratosphere. Is it, those, that's like aerosol injection, stratospheric aerosol, aerosol, injection, aerosol yes. injection. Yeah, Correct. So those technologies uh, do one thing and one thing only, that is to block out some of the sunlight. Um, there are some drawbacks to that. One is when you have less sunlight reaching Earth on average, say one or two or three or up to 5% less, then your renewable energy like solar panels would work not as well as before. You have a pro proportional drop in efficiency as a result of that. So those approach, so aerosol would actually impede a transition to renewable infrastructure because they make renew renewable energies less competitive against fossil fuels. Uh, Right? And also those technologies would necessarily be in the hands of very powerful nations who have the capital and technological know-how to implement those high-flying aircrafts and spring systems. So it would be a, a continuation of the domination of the select few and the rich people on um, the entire globe, especially the uh, global south who are bearing most of the brunt of the, the impact already and who won't have a say as to what the impact of those spraying operations would have on their habitat and their land. So in contrast, mirror is something that can be uh, implemented from the bottom up and uh, stress communities should receive priority in having this. Hopefully it's different from what happened with uh, COVID vaccines, but we should uh, already have humanitarian effort to um, you know, use these technology to test these out to bring a very immediate benefit to them. So. This uh, inhibition of renewable is one problem with the alternative approach of uh, atmospheric modification of reflectivity rather than this ground-based one. The other is when you have uh, a gigantic glass manufacturing industry as a result of implementing mirrors, then we would be able to make mirrors much more cheaply. And as a result, we can develop many energy capturing technology based on glass mirrors that would enable a faster transition to renewables. So you can use uh, uh, mirrors to increase the amount of sunlight that shines onto your solar panel, for example. And if you do so, you make them twice or three times more efficient per unit area. That also cuts down the requirement for uh, more high-tech products like solar panels, because mirrors are cheap. They're essentially, um, you know, you can source them already for about a dollar per meter squared or 11 square feet. So they're essentially negligible in cost. So we see the potential for uh, even better, you know, um, and larger manufacturing capability to even drop the cost even further 
and thereby promoting and catalyzing a transition to renewables as quickly as possible. So that's why the main reason uh, actually that way that we think um, why MIR should be uh, you know, implemented and tested, at least discussed in the mainstream. So one of the reasons uh, that my listener that actually got us in contact wanted me to have you on was to talk about this issue, and I don't know how much you can speak to it, but the issue of uh, greenwashing. And for my listeners, maybe you could describe what greenwashing is and uh, how Mirch seeks to maybe combat that in some ways. So uh, greenwashing is uh, essentially a PR uh, tactic used by um, corporations in order to portray their activity as having an if not overall beneficial, but at least an overall neutral impact on the environment. So uh, many uh, initiative, uh, initiatives promoted by environmentalists have uh, been captured by uh, corporate powers to greenwash their operations. So examples include uh, planting trees. So trees are essential for ecosystem health and the diversity of trees, especially in uh, primary forests that haven't really been uh, you know, cut down. But the problem is that trees, if one does a global analysis, are not sufficient really to measurably impact uh, the trajectory of the climate. So, uh, and they grow, you know, fairly uh, slowly. Takes over uh, fifty years to hundred years to really to reach maturity. So, um, if we are going to count on trees, then we would need uh, an Earth which is roughly ten times as large in order to put that many trees to have a measurable impact. So planting of trees and using that as a form of carbon credit is a form of greenwashing. So that's one. The other is uh, uh, currently what's been uh, really financed by governments and initiatives, uh, this um, drawdown of CO2 or capture of CO2 from the air. Um, This process is highly energy intensive. And there are intrinsic energy barriers that cannot really be uh, overcome because of fundamental laws of thermodynamics. You're trying to you know, uh, sift out very few uh, molecules of CO2 from an air. And this uh, concentration process um, takes a lot of energy due to um, the propensity of matter to mix and become very random. So entropy, entropy, you're trying to reverse that entropy. That's where there's some fundamental investment of energy. And if we do that calculation, uh, you know, the bare minimum entropy needs is 300 exajoules to demix the air to a level that's you know, more or less acceptable. And the US uh, military uses one exajoule per year. So the theoretical minimum would take 300 years uh, work by the US, US military in order to undo. We certainly do not have 300 years ahead of us you know, to uh, return to where we were. So even if somehow the world could uh, come together and finance an operation 10 times to say the, the size of the US military, we would still be looking at decades down the road for these uh, carbon capture to have a measurable impact. So uh, as an example, like one of these plants uh, in Iceland, you know, capture about, I think 4,000 tons of CO2 per year, right? So each of us in the United States, we um, emit on the order of, uh, uh, maybe 15 tons per person. So one plant is only addressing the need of, um, you know, a couple hundred people. So imagine how many of these plants, how many tens of hundreds of millions we would need to build in order to have a measurable impact. It's essentially prohibitive. So it's a, so these operations of, um, you know, selling captured or stored carbon or in trees or whatever, or uh, underground by these industrial methods are all forms of greenwashing and uh, if I may use the term scam, because they're portraying something that's not really faithful to what's being advertised. They will never be able to uh, really in, um, have a real impact on uh, the climate. They will turn a profit, however, because there's a, a knowledge gap in the administration and also policymakers. Not everybody was trained as a chemist or a physicist to be able to see through you know, the fundamental uh, flaws in the logic and in the, uh, the physics. So these loop, loopholes essentially are what's, um, um, what the corporations are exploiting in order to greenwash their operation. So that leads me to a question I had about, you know, when we talk about climate change, 
I do think it's going to affect all of us. At, at the same time, I think uh, what's been called the climate justice movement has a good point in saying that some of the people that will be most affected by climate change are likely in the global south. And I know uh, you mentioned how mirror can provide resilience for people in the global south. Um, do, do you think there is going to be uh, an inequity in how climate change affects certain communities and how can mirror help communities that maybe don't have the resources or aren't aren't as resilient at, at this current present point in time? Yeah, so uh, like as I mentioned, one of the first implementations is to make a mirror the roofing tiles and to test them in the regions in India or Central America that's really already too hot for human habitation, especially during the summer, during heat waves. So uh, we did a calculation of the general price of these uh, glass tiles. They're uh, basically among the cheapest uh, roofing material you can buy, much cheaper than say a metallic or aluminum and comparable to uh, white paint, essentially. Slightly more so that their you know, glass is more durable than white paint. So they're uh, really not pricey to implement and um, we can really afford to help a lot of the um, you know, under-resourced nations, underprivileged nations to build up resilience in, uh, against these heat waves. And that in turn would really help the world you know, gaining more time in order to uh, make the transition because when you have uh, hundreds of millions and billions of refugees at the border, then human would probably panic. And uh, it would be really hard to imagine that uh, the global society could hold together and really act in concert, especially given the current um, uh, organization of humans as nation states. Um, and if we look at what the militaries are preparing for, they're not really preparing for how to settle people, how to bring uh, you know, livable habitat to the people, but rather how to best uh, strengthen borders and what's the best uh, way to patrol borders and prevent entry. And look at the governments, like what the US government and what the European governments are doing, they are financing other countries in order to stop the flow of migrants and, you know, putting essentially people into concentration camps and subjected to conditions that are akin to genocide, that are essentially geno genocide on a larger scale. That's what's essentially going on both in the United States and also under uh, finance by the European Union. So these are you know, horror stories that are already unfolding and it's hard to imagine that it, the scale of such horror, um, you know, decades, years down the road, if we do not um, find ways to enable continued livelihood in these countries that are most hard hit by climate change and extreme. In other words, this could be one way to avoid or at least maybe offset in some ways the potential for a climate refugee crisis. Uh, certainly, yes. If the world got its act together, you know, it's uh, certainly scalable. And if you can uh, implement this uh, to scale within the next uh, three, four decades, we can achieve enough what's called radiative forcing, basically um, the cooling, which, you know, how many watts per meter squared that counteracts the warming by CO2 to more or less return Earth to a stable sort of climate overall. And if we can you know, work in concert to achieve and work for that goal only, then it's possible you know, with concurrent social transformations to more a socialist sort of uh, organization globally, then we could hopefully steer not only mothership Earth, but also uh, the human society and also our consumption patterns, our uh, population trends to more sustainable levels that's uh, compatible with sustainability and perpetuation of not only ourselves, but other species on earth and recovery of uh, biodiversity. Because you know, uh, uh, a re one result of this uh, unfettered capitalism is explosive growth of human population because capitalism wants more labor and that, that's one factor for production. So we also need to reconsider that. And to think about, are there better ways, uh, you know, to not sacrifice uh, life quality, but downscale the human enterprise? That's actually the last thing I wanted to get into was, I feel like we're going to need a complete transformation in just how we think more generally, not just with regards to climate change, but also socially. 
what do you think the biggest transformations that need to happen in our sort of uh, social thinking? What are the transformations that need to happen in order for us to sort of prosper in the future as a species? Well, the first thing to to happen is that we need to um, basically have a wealth cap. And uh, more so than wealth cap, we need uh, some sort of income cap, right? So if we really optimize or prioritize the pursuit of well-being and happiness, then it would be really difficult to justify uh, why we sh- uh, why we would allow, say, somebody to have 100 times more income than another person, because the excess income can hardly be converted into happiness indicators. So let's say we, you know, just as an example, constrained the range of income to within a factor of, I don't know, five. I'm sure there's still incentive for people to, you know, uh, to perform if some are so inclined to have a financial incentive, but a lot of people would be um, liberated and would uh, then their desire for creativity would be liberated and be put to maximal uh, more use. And when we, we know that innovation and creativity and arts are what brings happiness and the social advance, you know. So first of all, you know, no inheritance allowed, 100% devoted to public cause, and then capping where you can have income. So eliminate the billionaire and millionaire class globally. So those are some fundamental first steps, the very basic that needs to be done. And after that, then it's concurrent with that, a redefinition of what we should pursue as a species, what's our you know, role uh, as, and what's our purpose in this universe, in this life, the pursuit of innovation and just curiosity of knowledge. These should be uh, at least uh, as some of the uh, values that's more prominently highlighted than the current pursuit of just insane and obscene wealth. I was gonna say, it sounds like we need to look forward into a future that uh, I'm, I'm not even going to necessarily use, uh, you know, terms like socialist, but like a, a post-capitalist sort of future. Yes. I mean, the, the, these are, um, you know, innovations that are being um, currently considered by many intellectuals. I think all the leading intellectuals of our day are thinking along these lines. So I think what gives me confidence that uh, the pursuit of a knowledge, pursuit of happiness is a better um, model than the pursuit of wealth is that uh, me as a scientist and somebody who um, is uh, curious and somewhat you know, curious, um, I was having a conversation with, with one of my mentors um, when I was a, a student of the question, you know, why are we doing science? And um, if you ask many of the more successful academics, they would be um, um, happy to tell you that they find it amazing that they are being paid to pursue their hobbies. And many of us you know, in science would be willing, you know, if we had enough to live and some extra money to pay in order to continue the pursuit of knowledge and pursuit of curiosity and pursuit of uh, creative activities. So there's intrinsic motivation, I think, for human to be creative. And many people are quite happy doing that. And uh, it really brings a lot of satisfaction. And I can not say the same with, uh, you know, colleagues or friends who went um, the financial route, the pursuit of wealth. Many, you know, broke down emotionally uh, after a few years. Many took retirements at 30 because uh, once you earn 10, million a year, there's no more room to grow. So your self-actualization or the measure of your, your worth, uh, when it's not measured by an annual growth of your income, then it's hard to sustain that way. Whereas, you know, creation of arts, pursuit of knowledge, creation of knowledge for humanity, uh, for posterity, uh, there's always something new to be discovered. Uh, so I didn't mean to interrupt you earlier, but you, you said uh, income caps and, and things like that of that nature uh, are sort of a necessity in terms of a transformation. Are there any other sort of transformations in the way we do things uh, that we really need to focus on right now going forward? Yes. Uh, so that brings us back to this uh, designed, uh, you know, obsolescence problem and how we, uh, what's the true definition of sustainability, right? To be truly sustainable, you should be able to run the system essentially forever, at least theoretically. And 
let's say we're making you know cell phones and uh, computer chips. These uh, include many steps that use uh, metals in very small quantities in very complex structures. Those structures are intrinsically very difficult to recycle because you have to take them down from a complex mixture, then return to their component elements. Very energy intensive and difficult process chemically and physically. So we, in order to move to a truly sustainable state, we need to redesign most of our products. You know, we have to design 100% or maybe 95% recyclability uh, at the, the step of uh, designing products. And that has to be um, a, a requirements. So there's a lot of work, innovation that needs to be done in order to do things as well as we can do today, but also doing them in such a way that products are recyclable and easily recyclable so that recycling process doesn't cost more energy than it's required to make the new thing as is currently the case for like many things like plastics, right? So something like plastics needs to be essentially downsized as much as possible to only the really crucial components. Um, things like takeout boxes, bags, et cetera. These can very easily find replacements. So these things needs to be addressed. So these are the low hanging fruits, but the really difficult thing is how do we uh, uh, maintain, um, you know, some comfort of life uh, that enables the pursuit of happiness, uh, but while uh, knowing that in the end, the civilization needs to last not only for decades, centuries, but we need to plan for a civilization that can last for a few thousands of years at the, in the very least to be able to think that we're on the right track. So in closing, I mean, in talking about all of this and talking about mere reflection as a project and some of the ideas we've discussed here, including and up to maybe looking at happiness in a different way and how we measure success and things of that nature. I mean, it seems like we have a, a long road to go, uh, you know, especially, you know, when we're talking about things like, you know, our value systems, you know, we were talking about innovation. Uh, you use the term innovation a lot. I know so many people that will say, well, if we didn't have uh, the exact system we have where everything's based on profits, we wouldn't have innovation. And I always find that to be such a bizarre worldview. And it sounds like we really need to break through that thinking. What gives you hope that we can sort of break through barriers for the, the necessary paradigm shift? What gives you hope? A lot of it comes from necessity, because uh, by laws of physics, <laughs> the current par paradigm will end. It's just a question of time. And the question is whether uh, there would remain enough humanity and energy and resources to initiate and implement this transformation or not. That's a big unknown, right? There's a, every reason to believe that humanity will come to the end this century, the 21st century. And the odds are actually larger than the odds that we would have to overcome this bottleneck. So there, it's, there's a lot of uncertainty certainty ahead, but what gives hope is um, the youth. You know, um, they understand, many of them do not have um, the, uh, the baggage or the indoctrination of the older folks above the age of 40. If you talk to kids that are 15 and 20 or under, they're most often much more educated about um, climate science, about the need to transition than older folks who are unfortunately currently in charge and holding humanity in hostage. So, so I think it's high time for the old folks to take a early retirement and really to let people under 40 uh, to run the show. Is there anything else you'd like to say to my listeners about the Mirror Reflection Project or anything that I didn't uh, cover that you think is really important to drive home uh, to my listeners and, and maybe tell them how they can support the project. Yes, I think the, some of the central point is that um, climate change is a very complex uh, process and uh, it's impacting human societies via different climate stressors. But at the center of that, and the one that will become the most manifest and hurtful to uh, ecosystems and us is, the, is heat. So we really need to tackle this heat and decouple heat from worrying about greenhouse gas emissions. Both are important, but we have to prioritize. So we have to understand that we have limited resources, so we need to prioritize. 
we also have limited time. That's another reason why we need to prioritize. Uh, so there are many fights, but if we pick the wrong fights, we would be locking up resources to do the real transformation and real intervention that's needed to ensure a habitable Earth. So for uh, listeners who are interested in um, learning more and potentially helping, um, you can go to our website. Currently, it's uh, uh, mirrorreflection.com, M-E-E-R, reflection.com, in one word, mirrorreflection.com. Um, and there's um, in the media section, a lot of interviews and talks and lectures that uh, uh, I and team members have given. And uh, you will find uh, a lot of uh, references to the uh, primary research papers as well in those talks. And before I forget, what, what was your take on the the COP26, uh, the, the United Nations uh, Glasgow uh, Summit on Climate Change, the conference? It was uh, pretty much as expected. So the original mandate for the COP to uh, reduce emissions, that particular intervention is already outdated. So even if COP26 were somehow to achieve a commitment to ending emissions by 2021, that's irrelevant for the trajectory of the climate over the next two or three decades, which would more or less seal the fate of ecosystems and humanity. So, so it's an opportunity you know, to showcase the ineffectiveness of current uh, mode of government. And it's also a case for activists to communicate and um, organize and also to collaborate, but it's, uh, it doesn't have an actual impact on the near-term trajectory of the climate. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. I want to thank you, Dr. Gaye Tao, for coming on Parallax Views to talk about the Mirror Reflection Project. Thank you again. The pleasure of speaking with you. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Ye Tao of the Mirrors for Earth's Energy Rebalancing Framework, or MEER, M-E-E-R for short. I'd like to thank the listener, you know who you are, that suggested Dr. Tao to me. He was also the author of that dedication you heard at the beginning of the show. As always, if you support the work I do here at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. We've got a number of different tiers that you can support me at. $1, $5, $10, $15, and even a $100 tier. Any amount will help, and it will keep this show going. Uh, you, the listener that supports me on Patreon, along with the few sponsors we have for this program, are what keeps this show going. It makes this show possible. And of course, at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shoutout. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, the 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, and Elliot. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, please consider joining those listeners and supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm 
I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.